Uh, we all came expecting a session on marriage. And I thought of that, and I, as, uh, as I stepped in for Pastor Campus, I at least prepared at least one slide for those of you who want to hear on marriage. So do not walk away, because we'll cover some of it. But what I, what, what I would like to address really, and uh, my title of the slide gives away from the book of Titus, it's uh, Grace-Fueled, Christ-Exalted Pursuit of Godliness. Grace-Fueled, Christ-Exalted Pursuit of Godliness. This is really what I would like us to ponder, and this is going to be a continuation of what we've covered last week, the pursuit of holiness in our Christian walk. So it really fits well uh, even as we consider a subject of marriage. So let us open in prayer. Our gracious God, we are grateful that you did not call us to moralism. You did not call us to observe certain requirements with our own capacity. Because none of us can please you. None of us have ability to live righteously, godly, or holy in this world on our own. But we're grateful that in our Christian walk, we are infused with God's grace. We receive a new heart, a new desires, and new abilities. And we pray, Lord, as we look into your word, that your spirit would continue to press upon our hearts both a need and desire to pursue godliness, to manifest really the outworking of the gospel in our lives and every single area of our lives. Give us grace, we pray this morning. We also want to lift up Pastor Campus. Uh, pray for his family, Lord, as uh, he recovers. It, you give him much grace, much strength. Uh, I pray that uh, you would provide whatever medical treatment need is, needs to be. Lord, that he would be able to join us, and uh, I know he is such a blessing to all of us. So I pray that we as a congregation would continue to faithfully pray for him and pray for his healing and restoration. Amen. So today we're going to look at a, a portrait of godliness. Whenever uh, our family goes to the Getty Museum, there is only one specific portrait I always want to see. And last time we went last uh, year, around uh, September, I was looking uh, for that specific portrait, and unfortunately it was not on display. It is a portrait of a little girl that holds a dog in her hands. It was probably painted around the 18th century. It was probably the very small, but so remarkable, so beautiful. I've seen the first time that portrait about 20 years ago, and it really uh, stuck in my memory. So every time I go to the Getty Museum, and every time you would go to the Getty Museum, make your way to the 18th century section, look for the portrait. Usually it's a part of their advertisement. Uh, I don't have a picture. Maybe one of the Sunday schools, I'll bring a picture to show you. Uh, it is absolutely remarkable. <clears throat> so as we look to the scripture on the portrait of godliness. Uh, Book of Titus really deals specifically with this subject. So today we will try to examine, and I know our time is limited, uh, but we'll try to go fast, but not too fast. So fasten your seatbelts and let us go. Uh, Gentlemen at the remote, would you be so kind to turn the, the, the clicker? Okay, now we're on. Perfect. So the book of Titus, as we've done in the Old Testament, uh, a big snapshot of the book of Titus, the conduct. 
It's an extremely practical book. It deals with uh, new churches. So Paul is instructing Titus and equipping Titus to teach the churches how they should conduct themselves in the world. And this is the theme of the book, how to develop the order, godliness, and doctrinal understanding in the churches. So as Titus was uh, commissioned by Paul to do such a job, we all will find ourselves here in this book. In fact, chapter 2 is devoted really to the church members, and chapter 3 is devoted to us as the church members living out in this world. Now, whenever I study the scriptures, I also wanted to understand what are the, who are the people? What are the circumstances? Uh, who was the crowd? Because oftentimes we hear in such a modern and advanced age that Bible is so distant and irrelevant. So I want us to briefly spend a few moments and introduce to you the citizens of the island Crete. So who, where was the church? Who were these fellows? So the church was found, actually multiple churches, they were found on the island Crete, and there was the island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it was not a big island, about 160 miles from east to west, and about 35 miles north-south. Actually had the, one of the highest points on that island would be 8,000 feet in elevation, so it was a significant isle. Island. Uh, it was about 100 miles away from Greece, and at that time, probably two days of voyage, and people could arrive. What was the fun occupation of the citizens on, of that island? Definitely not miners, not fishermen. They were pirates. <laughs> As I was uh, reflecting on this, it's very interesting that um, these people, they made their trade as piracy. Why piracy? Well, they were located in such a unique spot. As you can see here, this is the island Crete. And it would be right almost in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, the entrance to Aegean Sea. And it would be on the trade route that would connect Egypt and Rome. So as the Roman Empire would expand, uh, the food supply for the Roman Empire would not come from the mountains. It would come from the plain lands of Egypt. And those grains, they had to be shipped um, maybe, so it was absolutely a lucrative opportunity for the, the citizens of the island Crete to occupy themselves with piracy. They would dominate the, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, ob- obviously, Roman Empire was not very pleased with them, and Roman Empire made multiple attempts, I, I repeat the word, multiple attempts to overcome and really to take control of the citizens of Crete. They have, uh, they have uh, showed multiple ways to resist until uh, about 68 AD when they finally surrendered. And it was a both military and peaceful surrender. So here in this context, the church was found. Now it's interesting that they not only in their occupation they were pirates, but the island itself was so diverse in its religion. In fact, Paul actually makes a reference to religious charlatans in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, when he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not uh, teach for the sake of sorting gain. 
these religious charlatans, they would infiltrate the church's families, and they would present themselves as religious teachers for the sword and gain, for the profit. Religion, profit. Sounds like prosperity, gospel. Well, who were the citizens? Uh, It's interesting that uh, Paul actually quotes one of their own. It says that the fellows who lived in Crete, in verse 12 of chapter 1, we read that uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How many of you would like to move into that neighborhood? (laughs) Only five families. Whenever we look to buy a house, we always explore the area. We try to look at a police report and do different things, trying to be mindful. Well, the island Crete, that's what they were known for. So whenever uh, you had to do a business dealing, the first question you would ask the person, where are you from? Not because he had the accent, but you wanted to make sure he is not from the island Crete because he's a liar. That's his default disposition. In fact, to be a Cretan, it was equivalent to be a liar at the time. So in, this is the context. Does it sound familiar to all of you? It sounds like uh, this is not too far from where we live in the 21st century. This is exactly a very similar context in the Pacific Northwest. Um, But what is remarkable that when the gospel came into that neighborhood, the gospel brought absolutely remarkable transformation that could not be explained but by the grace of God. And this is truly what happens today. In the same way, God works in the same manner. When the gospel comes to our neighborhoods, there is a transformation from inside out. So as we look at uh, this Believers and the instruction that Paul gives to these believers, we want to learn and to manifest in our lives this portrait of godliness. So how would we define godliness? Godlike? According to God, okay. Merciful? Humble, obedient, demonstrates fruits of the Spirit. Well, Titus actually, at the end of chapter 2, will tell us that the, the godliness is the outworking of God's grace. Godliness is not a moralism. Godliness is a lifestyle according to God. It does require discipline. Uh, receive, Peter in chapter 1 uh, tells us that we as Christians, we receive everything that is necessary for life and godliness. So God has uh, provided or endowed us with the necessary spiritual resources to pursue godliness. So if somebody gives an excuse, oh, I cannot pursue godliness then you need to question, like, why? Are you not a Christian? And if you're a Christian, don't you know that you have been given everything necessary to pursue godliness? It comes with a cost. 
Paul writes to Timothy, everyone who, who desires to pursue godliness, they will be living comfortably. <laughs> no, they will be persecuted. Uh, it is interesting here in this text that godliness is the closest friend to holiness. So if you see a holy life, that is a godly life. And if you see a godly life, that is a holy life. Uh, I'm just going to give us a definition that Jerry Bridges gave. I thought it's a very succinct and very helpful. Devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. In other words, godliness is the truth that has its feet and walks in this world to please God. Every single area of my life is lived in a way to please God. And we can put there, area of our life, marriage. So let us read a text. If you can open to uh, Titus chapter 2, we really will focus here in chapter 2. Now I'll ask Ryan to read for us. If Ryan, you, if you could stand and read as loud as you could. One more. One more, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I want you to notice, uh, as you probably have heard and looked through your scriptures, that this grace empowered in Christ, exalting pursuit of godliness, is here in this text. If you notice in, in verse 11, Paul actually tells us, for the grace of God has appeared. When Christ, in his first coming, appeared, that grace brings salvation to all 
man instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And we're not only living now, but we're also looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is really the, the underlying motivation uh, from, for the entire chapter 2 of Titus. Paul provides to us uh, an understanding that Christians are not people who simply externally looking good and have everything put together in their life. These are people who supernaturally transformed. This is what marks us. We are not here because we exercise and we exercise and we apply self-discipline and we read so many great books on self-discipline, but we have experienced in our life grace that transforms us from inside out. Now, if you are here and you have tried and tried and tried and tried and it doesn't work, the first real question that you need to ask, what is your standing in Christ? Are you in Christ or not? Because that bond, inseparable bond of our unity with Christ, that's what enables us to actually live a godly life. And why do I bring it up? Because oftentimes, uh, it depends on certain contexts, we can easily uh, encourage one another or go after this pursuit of godliness in a very uh, man-centered way. And it just needs a little bit of time when we realize it's impossible. It's impossible to overcome and deal with any sin in our life in our own strength. So as we look into the text, and we're going to look at at the portrait of a godly man and uh, certain characteristics of a godly man, I want us to remember that from from the very beginning. This is a grace-empowered. It is a supernatural transforming work of God that he does in us, and we actively pursuing it. And last time I've given you an illustration that uh, like a, a, a man who is in a sailboat, it is his job to raise the sails, to lift up sails and let the, the wind of the Holy Spirit to move the sail toward Christ-likeness, toward godliness. So the, every single area of our lives is pleasing to God. So what is the portrait of a godly man? If you are to ask uh, to describe to you what are some key features of that portrait? What would you say? Now, ladies, you should raise your hand and say, look at my husband. <laughs> men, you should, when the question is, if it's asked, give us a portrait of a godly woman, all men should say, look at my wife. And I pray this is true of all of us. It is interesting that in a text, uh, and I don't have really full text in front of us, but there are certain characteristics here in the text, and when you have the entire chapter in front of you, you will see it will be applicable to absolutely all of us, regardless of our age, the color of our hair, and abilities to walk. So let us look uh, really where the text starts, uh, the, the portrait of a godly man. Now, again, as I said, that these characteristics, even though Paul starts focusing on older men, they will be applicable in the various passages in the Scripture to all Christians. So if at this point slides show 
a picture of a godly man, it does not mean that women are excluded. So let us draw a picture. Uh, how many of you play the, the game, you know, picture words? Yes. So the first, oh, this is not a good color to choose. It's interesting on the computer, it looks good, but here it doesn't come as bright. Well, in your texts, it's a very bright. So look in, in, in Titus 2.2. 2. Paul writes that he urges that older men first to be temperate. So when you hear the word temperate, what does it mean? This is a, a word that literally means a man who is moderate in drinking of alcohol. That was the, really the literal meaning of the word when Paul was writing. In Paul's days, this word, uh, really, it became a picture of a man who is not given to intoxication of any fleshly appetites. Okay, so it's not simply an area of alcohol. This is a really a question of appetite in any areas of our lives. Um, whenever I think of, I try to come up with an example, and all right, we're going through how many of you remember Sons of Eli? How many of you tried to follow their example? <laughs> the Sons of Eli, they were known for one thing. I want it, that piece I want it now, I want it at any cost. Give it to me, or I punch you. Okay, this is their characteristic. These were priests in the temple under the supervision of their father. It is a really, really bad situation. And it says actually in the first Samuel that the word of God, it was very barely a light was shining there. So that, they, they are negative example what the temperate means. So a man who is sensible, self-restrained, has a clear head. A man who controls his tongue, he's not sharp with his speech. When some, someone offends him, Okay, and what would be the good picture? A volcano. And I think Pastor Paul was preaching today on this subject. It is not a man who, when he's offended, he's brewing, 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 and suddenly just bursts, and there is a great casualty. He's not intoxicated by desires to obtain wealth, that he loses everything. Do we see that in our days? Uh, there is a one word called casino. He's not a man who who gambles his life away. He has learned not to rush his financial decisions. He learned to practice contentment. He avoids uh, you know, the urge. I, I want it and I want it now. I must have it now. This is a man who cultivated, by God's grace, and I will repeat again, by God's grace, ability to say no, ability to think, ability to reason. Whenever somebody cuts off uh, on whenever he's driving on the road, he is not given to rage. He holds that beast with a very, very short chain. Uh, and he is not cultivating his life with a character. I must have it now. So this is the first characteristic that Paul writes about the godly man. And John MacArthur has given us a very healthy observation that godly older believers... The Christians are not given to excess. They have learned the high cost 
that accompanies a self-indulgent lifestyle. When most men reach the age, this age in life, they know what has a real value. Such a wise assessment of priorities need to be passed on to the next generation. So what is the focus? The focus of a tempered man is a greater reward. And this is really what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, who said, I discipline my body. I buffet my body to pursue a crown, the unfading crown, another reward that will fade away. So if this is a picture of a godly man, how do we cultivate to be temperate? That's a great answer. How do we become temperate? Stop and think before we do something. Now, again, application is true for all of us, both brothers and sisters, men and women. This is a very important for us, beloved. We walk by the Spirit. Okay? We renew our mind by the work of the Spirit, and we put on display the fruit of the Spirit, self, being self-controlled. Uh, know yourself. And there is a, a, a great writer, and we know the, that writer by the book Pilgrim Progress, uh, John Bunyan. Now, he wrote another volume, A Spiritual War. How many of you read? This is a great, it's very, uh, very similar to Pilgrim Progress. He really draws the allegory. In The Spiritual War, um, he depicts the city, the city that has... Uh, uh, multiple gates. That city belonged to El Shaddai. And the city had multiple gates and eventually was invaded by Diabolos. Now, the way that city was structured, they had five gates, really five senses, the way Banyan illustrates. So it's, it's uh, eyesight, it's a uh, uh, sensation, feeling, taste, hearing. And one of the analogies, really, for us to understand which gates need fortification. That there are certain gates that have weaknesses in my city, and the city is the soul of man. Uh, That those gates need fortification. None of us have arrived. So we understand that, and we have a really, really uh, biblical and sound understanding of who we are. Obviously, uh, to be tempered means also to practice contentment to understand God's providence in my life, that where I am right now, every single circumstance in my life is not a mistake. God graciously and wisely placed me where I am to accomplish his greater purpose, my Christ-likeness and his glory. And obviously, when we want to be tempered, we pursue godliness. And last but not least, we live transparently. So next characteristic that Paul gives us in Titus 2.2 for godly man is to be dignified. Dignified means what? Let's ask this section. You guys have been very quiet, unusually quiet today. (laughs) Not silly, okay, very good. What about this section? I'll give you a hint. 
is somebody who is honorable, worthy of respect, a man who has a good character, uh, not silly. Uh, it, it displays a serious, seriousness in life. It's, it's a man who has a gravity. He understands um, the weightiness of matters. He is not flippant about decisions in life, leading the family, making decisions in the church, making decisions in the work. Uh, it's a person who has given some thought to that and understands really the, both consequences. It's a man of integrity. What does it mean, integrity? When the foundation of your house does not have integrity, and you know that during the inspection, would you buy that house? No, no. Only two of you would. <laughs> Nobody would. Yes, because we understand we do not want that house to collapse while we're there. And we definitely know that the insurance company will not provide insurance when they will read the inspection report that the, the foundation failed integrity. So this is the same thing in our, in our character, beloved. This is something that God does in our life. He transforms us, he changes us, that we would be people of integrity. Our inner life and our outer life would be matching. We do not play a game of religion or a game of Christianity. We're consistent who we are at church, at home, at work, in whatever areas of life we are. That's the, that's the life of integrity. There was a man. Here's an example for us who lacked integrity. For whatever reason, Lot, when he warned his so-to-be future sons-in-law, they, they thought he's joking. Because Lot apparently lacked dignity. He was not... Uh, he didn't uh, display um, that gravity gravitas in his character whenever he would uh, speak with them. It, it is a characteristic definitely of the, somebody who desires and aspires to be an elder, and it says that he, he keeps his children under the control with all dignity. He's somebody who is serious, but is not unkind. Okay? He understands the occasions uh, to act appropriately to the occasion. Okay? So it's not a person who comes to the funeral in a clown suit. <laughs> or vice versa. Okay? So he understands and he acts accordingly. It's not a person who, when he speaks to three-year-old, he bends down, he speaks on their eye level. He doesn't scorn them because they're being childish. They like to play with the ball. He just joins them to play with the ball. He just takes them away from parking lot, says that he's a safer place. Let's go and play. And he understands that. Um, now, this is not a person who seeks to, uh, to be honorable and really to receive honor at all costs. This is a life that really leaves a good legacy. It is an orderly life and uh, something that others can respect. So how do we cultivate uh, to be dignified? This dignity. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Mean what you say. Mean what you say. Scriptures, absolutely. Yes, I, I put one verse for us, and again, this is true for men and for women, that uh, 
who are the friends? My mom always will tell uh, us as kids, says, show me your friends, and, I, and, and I'll tell you who, where your life is. You know, bring your friends home, let me meet them, and I will tell where you are. She had that the thermometer of character in life, of our hearts, by our friends. Well, uh, dignity has its own friends, and these friends are in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Nate, would you be so kind to read for us? These are the friends that uh, gather together and go through life with, uh, with somebody who is dignified. Now next, sensible. Now it's interesting that a sensible is, a, is really a, a character that Paul would apply to men, to women, to younger men, to all of us. There is absolutely no exemption from that. So as we look... Um, I was debating how to title my slide. I'll, I'll put godly man, and I'll switch to godly women, and then I'll put again godly young man. So bear with me. But let's not lose the heart of the text. And really, the, what, what should be part of our portrait as we pursue to be godly in this world? So a sensible person is a person of a sound mind. Now the emphasis here, very similar to temperate, but specifically to the thinking process. Now, this is not addressing our IQ. It does not address AI. It does not address a brain function. But it deals with our spiritual mind. That is the inner man, and specifically the thinking capacity. It's a, it requires really for all believers. Yes, somebody has given an answer, so we'll get to that. Uh, sensible man. Um, you may, uh, just a few passages really for us to see where this word's been used. Uh, you remember when Paul was in the defense and he went and really was persuading uh, the king Agrippa, that Festus, the governor at the time, he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Well, he was not out of his mind. He says he wished to persuade that all would believe and all would follow and be like Paul except his chains. Uh, another example in Mark 5:15, where Jesus cast out uh, the whole legion of demons out of two fellows. Well, it says that uh, in Mark instances, it was one fellow. He, the man was in his right mind. He thinks, he processes through life rightly. Romans 12, 3, this is really the outworking of the gospel that we now think properly about ourselves. We don't think too highly. Or we don't think too lowly. Woe to me, I am such and such and such. No, we think rightly. We understand who we are in God's eyes and who we are being redeemed by Christ, and we understand our place and role in the church, and we also know how to we sensibly relate to one another in the life of the church. Here in Romans 12, verse 16, Paul writes, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So don't think that you are 
you know, super great and you've achieved everything and you're super righteous. No, be sound, be right in your estimation, not too high. It is a life, really, that's the word that I heard, the, the wisdom discernment. It's a life that's marked by wisdom and discernment. And I put here one key word, marked by biblical wisdom and discernment. Why this word is so important? If you go to Lord Google and you type the word wisdom, and if you want to read the books on wisdom, you probably will not finish all of them by the end of your life. This world has much to offer. And this world is filled with its so-called wisdom or discernment. But uh, the scripture, when it says about sensible person, sensible man, it speaks about biblical wisdom. Somebody who put on display the, the outworking of biblical wisdom and biblical discernment. So who would define biblical wisdom? Excellent. Applying God's word. Yes. To say, to say it simply, it's a skill for living. I would say, in other words, it's being godly. It's really somebody who takes God's truth, appropriates it, and lives it out, regardless of whatever circumstances. Somebody who navigates through life. Through, uh, it's the very skillful captain who can navigate through a very foggy lake with many, many rocks. He knows how to navigate. This is the illustration of biblical wisdom. And what is the biblical discernment? To distinguish between good and bad, good and evil, yes. Good and best. Thank you. Uh, I think that's a very important for us because biblical discernment is able to separate and to draw the clear line between what is good and what is almost good, what is right and what is almost right. It, it is a separation. It is a very clear distinction. I was fascinated. That I was watching on YouTube how uh, people in the East, in Japan, uh, how they uh, clean tuna. They take a massive fish, 200 plus pounds, and the guy, like, just, just a few moments. But he knows how to separate. He has a massive knife. I requested for my Christmas gift. They said they will not ship it to the United States. Um, uh, but he knows how to do it. This is a very skillful man who knows how to clearly separate. That when you go to a Japanese restaurant and you order your tuna sashimi, it comes perfect. You enjoy it. Uh, but this is the skill. This is something that is characterized by somebody who is sensible. Beloved, we all are facing variety of decision-making. It starts now. And it is true every single moment. We're bombarded with decision-making. So how do we go about the decision-making? We want to cultivate sensibility in our life. Now, for ladies, I only have five minutes, so you do not feel that I've been speaking only to men and, and you know, and no. It applies actually to all of us, all five bases. But Paul continues, uh, I think, verses six and seven, where he instructs older women to instruct younger women. That's, uh, that's really the ministry in the local church 
to, to cultivate that sensibility in their lives. And obviously, Paul implies that older women, when you will be instructing younger women, you already uh, are sensible, and you know what you're going to teach them. So this is the cardinal virtue defined by modesty. Who are the friends of sensibility? Well, it's a dignified conduct, restraint in the areas of passions, and uh, it's really fidelity to the husband, to her husband. What would be good examples? Ladies, what would be a good example? When you go to the scripture and look for somebody who is sensible. Ruth. Ruth. Okay. I don't have it, but good. Proverbs 31. Abigail. It's actually stated about her. Mary, mother of Jesus. Fair. Ruth. But we definitely see those examples in the scriptures. Now, there are some younger fellows here. So whenever uh, we would teach through Titus, uh, the question is, well, how do you define who is the older man and older woman? I think with the older men it's easier, but how do you define, where do you draw the line, older woman? I don't have the time to do that today. <laughs> but the scripture does clearly distinguish it. So let's deal with younger men. It's much easier. <laughs> So, apparently, Paul instructs that younger men also to be sensible. This is really the mark of the gospel. This is what the gospel and the grace of God does in our lives. He cultivates these portraits, these characteristics. So, for young men, they are clear-headed. They exercise sound judgment. Their life is not a perpetual video game. Again, this is the work of their thinking, of their mind. They, they think about their out, uh, the worldview, the way they perceive life. It's, not, it's without illusion. It's restraining self-discipline and also self-discipline in the areas of their passions. The friends of sound mind is moderation and contentment. Uh, this is a very helpful, really, uh, overview from book of Ecclesiastes when he ends the, Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes speaking to young men. Like others, they may soon die and they should be habitually in such a frame of mind as to be prepared to stand before God. A young man who feels that he may soon uh, who feels that he may be soon in the internal world cannot be sensible of the property or priority of having a propriety of having a sound mind and of living and acting as in the immediate presence of his maker and judge. This is really the wording of Ecclesiastes, kind of his appeal to young men that they would enjoy life, but remember that they will stand before the creator. So how do we cultivate Excellent. That's exactly what we do. We sign up to the Eastridge Reading Church Plan, okay? And we read the scriptures. We let the Word of God saturate our hearts. 
like a sponge. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ through the ministry of the Word. We love the truth. We cultivate discipline of listening. Uh, we do not build life on our, on our assumptions. We seek the plurality of godly counsel in our decisions. And I want to end this with uh, this slide, really, again, coming back to this text, uh, because it's so important for us to understand that the portrait of godly man does not grow in insulation from God, but it is a supernatural work of God in our active pursuit. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness in worldly desire, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Next week will be love and marriage. As I promised, at least one slide. <laughs> Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful. And we marvel that what the grace of God is doing in our lives, that you're taking wretched sinners, people who indulge and pursue sin, and you expose our sin, the ugliness, the destruction of our sin, and you demonstrate your grace, your forgiveness, and your salvation that Christ has attained. And you transform our hearts that we would pursue godliness, that we would be pleasing to you in every area of our lives, whether we're single or married. I pray that you give us grace, and I pray that we would cultivate the character and the portrait of a godly man and a woman. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.